Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a new podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Claudia Garcia. Claudia serves on the State Executive Board for the California Association of Environmental Professionals, and she's an environmental planner. Claudia's path to an environmental career was challenging as an immigrant and the first person in her family to receive both undergraduate and graduate degrees. She has worked on projects that include environmental justice, community outreach, and environmental analyses and CEQA documents. She shares how CEQA's existing framework can be used to address environmental justice concerns. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And our guest today is Claudia Garcia with Ascent Environmental. Thank you so much for joining the Environmental Leadership Chronicles with AEP. Why don't we start by you telling us how you're connected to AEP and what your role is? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, This is such an interesting podcast. Uh, Currently, uh, I am a director at large for AEP on the executive board charged with conference awards and student outreach. Um, This is something that I've been doing for the past few years. I think it's a total of three, rounding the fourth. Um, Really exciting work. I get to coordinate with all the student liaisons from each of our nine local chapters throughout the state who are doing the work on the ground to encourage students uh, to not only be a part of AEP, but also to transition from uh, their student work to their career. Uh, So that's really kind of the the where my heart is. I really enjoy doing doing that type of work. And the awards are cool too. I mean, who doesn't like to give out awards, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the most right. fun. And right. And I'm on the board with uh, Claudia. We I'm also a director at large. I do believe we're rounding out our fourth year. Mm-hmm. And then the, yeah, the third director will be up next year. So um part of I just want to give a little background. Part of being a part of the state board is that you um, make decisions for state programs like the conference that that you get to be a part of and you engage the students to participate and volunteer at that conference. And there's many ways to get involved, like the students can present the award awards themselves right to to professionals and engage with them. And I think that's um, really, really fun. And you mentioned the nine chapters of AEP throughout the state of California. So students that are looking to become student members of the organization join a chapter and go to all those events. And they also have resources at the state level. So it's not only a local attention, but then a statewide network of professionals. And and you, Claudia, you get to be a decision maker on the board. You're like, you have a vote your voice gets heard, you make decisions. It's right. I'm so glad like, to be there with you. <laughs> it is. It's it's fun. And I'd like to think I like to think of myself as an advocate. So, you know, I meet with the student liaisons every month and I ask them, you know, how is it going? I provide them the resources that they need to either host webinars for their students or connect them with professionals. Um, connect them with potential either internship opportunities or career kind of, you know, uh, introductory uh, career opportunities. Um, Also, you know, ask them what they need. Do you need more resources for funding? Do you need more resources to support your scholarships? And, you know, my role is to go to our board meetings, our executive board meetings and advocate for these changes. And um, 
I'm, I'm the one that's most connected to, you know, student outreach. And so it's my role to communicate those needs to the rest of the board and help them understand why it's so important to continue to support our students so that they enter our career and our planning as a planner, as an environmental planner, um, and kind of um, uh, submerge themselves into, into our day to day. You know, I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, one concrete example of the changes that you've advocated for at the board, you and I, um, plus the president and and other people on the executive committee and board, really wanted to support students during the pandemic. We, they didn't get to graduate like normal graduates. Um, they don't have the in-person support that we would have had pre-pandemic, and so the board voted to allow free student memberships. Uh, throughout the pandemic for you to be a part of AEP. So that's just a, a classic example of how we can adapt to a situation and make a decision as a board that we value engagement from our students and we're here to support you, to guide you into the environmental profession. We're not just going to like leave you hanging and expect you to pay an annual due, albeit it was, you know, it's $25, $35. I can't remember. I should know, but um, yeah, I join, think it's 35 $35 for a whole year, uh, which is, which is, in context for other professional organizations, very affordable. But during a pandemic, we thought, let's break down some more barriers. That said, why don't we um, talk about your role at Ascent Environmental as a consultant in the private sector? Sure. Um, well, I think before we move on, is that okay? Like mentioned, I think that oh, yeah. another another reason why I'm so passionate about you know, my position on the board and coordinating with students is because that's how I got involved with AEP. My first introduction to AEP was as a student volunteer at the conference in Huntington Beach. And I was the only graduate student there. Most of the students were undergraduates at, from uh, San Luis Obispo. And so they're in there like planning um, major, you know, so they're, they're on it. They've been marketing, they know it. And so that was like my first introduction and it was pretty scary, but I really enjoyed it. And I was able to connect with professionals. And that's actually through that experience is how I got my first job as an environmental planner. And so I wanna be able to provide that opportunity for existing students, either whether they're at a two-year university, whether they're in high school still thinking about it, don't even know about our profession, or they're at a four-year university. You know, I think it's important to provide that opportunity for, for everybody. Uh, I remember the Huntington Beach Conference <laughs> yeah. because we had s'mores outside around the fire pit. And I thought, this is the best organization where I get to go to Huntington Beach, learn about all the nerdy environmental stuff and eat s'mores outside on the beach with all of these professionals and leaders in the environmental industry. It was a while ago, but it stuck with me too. It totally blew my mind. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Part of your story about, about entering as a graduate student is empowering. Uh, tell us what you studied in undergrad and then graduate and how you found AEP. Like, where did that come from before you knew that there was a Huntington Beach conference? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, as an undergrad, I went to community college. So my my road to, to my career was pretty long and just kind of curvy. Um, out of high school, I went straight to work because, you know, I was, I was you know, my, my life was all about you. You just 
find a good job and that's what you do. Make money to support yourself. You know, I was on my own at 18. I needed a job that was going to afford me the opportunity to have my own apartment. And so I was actually uh, working at a grocery store, Union, Journeyman, UFCW 324. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, at the grocery store, my, my coworkers were going to community college and I was like, oh, wow, you know, what's that all about? College wasn't something that, I thought I could ever do. And so I started going to community college too. And because I was working full time, it took me five years to finish all of that work so that I could transfer to a four-year university. And when I did, I transferred to UC Berkeley. And so when I, and I was so excited, I, I just applied to UC Berkeley because I was like, this is the only time I was going to be doing this. So I'm going to apply to all the UCs and hope one of them sticks and that one stuck which was awesome so I moved to the Bay Area I was living in Whittier California at the time and uh, majored in molecular environmental biology and anthropology because I like them both um, after, so I graduated during the recession I thought that my degrees were going to be this golden ticket and my name was Charlie and all the chocolate factories were going to let me in. But that's not how it worked. So I had to go back to work, worked for a nonprofit, um, waited tables, and then I decided to go to graduate school. I said, I, I need I need a master's degree because it's, you know, the job market is pretty rough out there. So I decided to major in environmental studies. Um, my, my focus shift more from like academia to career. What can I learn? What skills do I see in job ads that people want and how can I get those skills during my graduate degree? So I, I, you know, I got two semesters of GIS. I did a semester of like LIDAR. I did environmental engineering where we took samples of like wastewater and put them in a funnel and we did you know anything. And so that way I could just apply to a range of jobs and hope that I can start a career finally after all that time. And I also learned how important networking was. And so I simply Googled environmental professionals networking and AEP came up. <laughs> yeah. And to my surprise, that the Huntington Beach conference was only a couple of months away. And I said, I need to be there. So I cold emailed Lynn Binder. I said, Lynn, my name is this. I do this. Can I volunteer? And she said, yes. Look, so I did. <laughs> look, look how just saying yes, like you took such proactive initiative to go. Firstly, I mean, you're just blowing my mind here. You're you're going, okay, what skills does the practical world need, but in a field that brings me joy? Right. And based on that skill set, I need to meet these people. So mm -hmm. I'm going to Google networking and here's this professional organization and, oh, there's a conference. And so you decided to email the executive director of the organization and say, I'm Claudia, I'm coming, give me, give me a role. Beautiful. I encourage listeners out there, students, people of all different ages, if you're looking to get into the environmental profession, here's a classic example of where you put yourself out there and you say, hi, I'm me. I want to do this. How can I participate? Someone's going to open that door for you. Yes, definitely. And I, I appreciate that so much. You know, Lynn didn't hesitate at all. She was like, sure, I'll add you to the list. What days can you come? And I went. 
you know, and I went to a lot of different uh, panels that kind of went over my head. I, I remember I was sitting like in this discussion about LOS and Ew. didn't know what level of service <laughs> was at that time. And I said, maybe this isn't for me, <laughs> but, but, you know, transportation, I'm not a transportation planner. Um, and I also went to a student focused panel and I had about 60 questions. I, you know, was in sitting next to other students and my hand was just going up every five seconds. And that's how, you know, it was, it was from that panel that they, you know, they approached me or I approached them afterward and they said, here's my card, follow up. And I did, you know, and, and that's what led me here. So. That is, that's fantastic. I think it's also a testament to our audience that this industry of environmental professionals and leaders in the environmental profession are interested in engaging you and are available to support you. It's just a matter of, of facilitating that connection. This isn't an industry where we keep our cards close to our chest and it's hyper, it's definitely competitive for sure, but it's not um, cutthroat to the level where you're like pushing people out of the way to get, get places. Like we, as, as members of the board, we're here for you. I want you to come to me. I want to support you. And Claudia, you said your, your passion is supporting students. So for all those listeners out there, now you see her, you know, her name, <laughs> if you don't know, now, you know, you've yeah. got this opportunity. And please send me us, emails. <laughs> yeah. Email, email, email. Tell, um, tell us about what a day in the life is like for your work now. How, because I think as an environmental planner, I didn't understand what that was at all in my undergrad degree. And I don't think I understood it for a good five years into my career, what environmental planning is and, and all the things that it covers. So, so can you clarify, please? Yes. I, you know, I really enjoy being an environmental planner because I get to wear many hats. First and foremost, what I wanted in a career was something that was going to keep me interested, um, where I was, when I, where I was afforded an opportunity to keep learning, uh, to keep advancing in my skill level. And I get to do that here. I'm also a people person. I don't know if you can tell, I just like, you know, talking to people and I get to work in a team with really talented professionals every day. You know, so what does that mean? Well, I now that we're, you know, working from home, I get up, walk to my desk, sit there, and I write all day. That doesn't sound too exciting, but it is because I'm writing about really interesting things. Um, I get to work on different types of projects. Um, the types of projects that I primarily work on is, you know, urban development and fill development. Um, I work on like CEQA documents for long-range plants, like general plants or specific plants. Um, and that's really what I focus on. So depending on the types of projects that I'm working on, you know, there may be UC Santa Cruz long-range development plan. It might be a specific plan in the Central Valley. It might be a commercial building development in San Jose, you know, and I get to interact with our clients from different jurisdictions across the Bay Area. Um, I get to develop positive relationships with them. I get to interact internally with our technical team, learning a little bit about air quality modeling, learn a little bit about GHG, um, 
you know, transportation. I get to meet all kinds of different transportation planners when we work with subconsultants. And I'm always amazed by our natural resources group. They can just write this 100-page biological resources section that touches on all the special status species in the area. They, they craft these amazing mitigation measures, and it's just so fun. I agree. That's That was my introduction to it. I was, you, as a SQL planner, or as an environmental planner, you get to pull information from all of these technical reports and put it into one document that tells a story. And it's supposed to be understandable by an eighth grader and their grandma and grandpa, grandpa alike. And that takes some creativity, but it draws upon all the technical work that these specialists do. And I, I think that's why it's so fun to be a planner too, because you wear all of those hats without being the subject matter expert on transportation for say, or biology or water or air, you get to be the amalgamation of it all. Right. And, yeah. and you're constantly learning about all the things. I think that's a good point, Laurel. I'm. I, it's important to say that I'm a generalist in that way, right? We get to pick from different subject matters. Um, you know, CEQA doesn't change. CEQA is very prescriptive. It tells us what to do. The project changes, and that's what makes it interesting. And then you also have all these technical experts that are focused on air quality, that are focused on GHG, um, that are focused on transportation, hydrology, and geology. You know, they're they're amazing and they they get to kind of apply all of their knowledge, review all of these peer-reviewed journals and include that information in these documents. And yes, we have to make it understandable, which can be difficult to do, especially for like a noise section. Yeah. There's only so much you can do to adjust that language. Um, but we have to do our best because, you know, this is a a public document and it belongs to the people and they need to be able to understand it so that they could go to their decision makers and and air their grievances with the project um, to kind of come to a decision. We've and talked I about was gonna, or, Go ahead. Sorry, can you hear me? <laughs> um, I was going to ask, you know, because you've got to work on so many different projects and you have a diverse like background and all this different experience and I was wondering if there's any projects that are near and dear to your heart, like a personal cause, for example, that is a great project that you've been proud to work on or a dream project too, for that matter. Yes. I think this project that I worked on early in my career, um, it was a really tiny, uh, small mitigated neg negative declaration for an organization that was focused on um, connecting farmyard animals to students with um, disabilities, whether that's like physical or learning or students that come from, or young people that come from homes that are, you know, broken or they're challenged in that way, in that personal way. And all they do is they invite these individuals, these young individuals to hang out with some chickens or hang out with a miniature goat. And it brings a smile to their face and it brings them joy for that moment. And I was able to work on the secret document that allowed them to move from the small farm to a park and expand their organization. Um, and it was just wonderful, wonderful to do that. I went to, uh, to an event celebrating their new location and there was an image of a young woman who was um, 17 years old, and it was her smiling. 
And underneath it, it said that that was her first smile ever. So it just like brought so much joy. Yeah, nothing wow. has topped that since. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's it's so good because when you think about the work that we do, I I tend to think about those big long range plans like you're talking about earlier. General plans, climate action plans, renewable energy plans, community plans, all those big things, and you definitely have an impact. And then it's when you get those little passion projects where it's an actual project under CEQA. It triggers the whole process, but there's such a deeper connection and meaning. And you get to look back on that and be like, I was a part of that process. I think we. it's important to also note that you don't have to be a professional environmental planner or environmental consultant to be a part of that kind of process, mm-hmm. right? It's a civic public disclosure engagement. That's what CEQA is. It's a public disclosure act. And there's many points of engagement. You have had a role on a planning commission before. So explain to to us what are the different points of engagement for a regular citizen who's not a professional planner to get involved and why it's so important? Yes. So during my time as a planning commissioner during the city of Richmond, um, I was able to serve once again as an advocate for my community. Um, I think that it's important to understand that the people on that dais, although intimidating as it can be, it was to me every time I walked into that room um as a community member you your voice matters the people that are sitting up there they want to hear from you and they want to base their decisions uh from what you tell them from what's important to you as a community member so attend those hearings uh make your voice heard ask those questions and require more from your local uh planning representatives. I think that's important too, because they're there to advocate for you too. Um, So I think what I learned that was really important as a planning commissioner is that we can ask for more. It's It's not like as a consultant, I have to do what CEQA requires, but as a decision maker, I can ask for more than what CEQA requires. So I would be sitting there reviewing a project and I would ask the developer, hey, this area needs a little bit of beautification. The sidewalk in this corner is not so good. We need some more trees. Can you add some more trees to your landscape plan? And they would say yes. And yes, I will fix that sidewalk. So it just it just takes a little bit of asking and a little bit of creativity to get a little more from them because they want you to approve their project. And so I think it's important for decision makers to realize that they have that power. Especially in uh, low income or disadvantaged communities or EJ community, environmental justice communities, it's really important that civilians understand that attending these public hearings and providing their public comment is not a judgment on what they know and what they don't know. This is an opportunity for you to say, I don't understand the process. I'm not the expert, clearly. That's why you haven't hired me to do this work. I am an expert, however, in the quality of life of my community. I live here. I work here. I travel here. um, I see things. For example, I've noticed that it's really unsafe for my children 
to wander around the sidewalks in this area because there's not a, um, a crossing, like a pedestrian crossing across the street. Is that something that can be included in the transportation plan or, or a haul route study for this development project so that somebody who's already updating this road can just add that in as part of their project? And I think, like you said, people will find that developers are can can be very open to improving the quality of life of their residents because that's the whole purpose of their project in the first place. They wouldn't be developing something if there wasn't a purpose and need. And so being a civilian and coming in and saying, I see this little detail that perhaps you missed and I recommend including it. I, I, I just want to encourage people to think that you don't have to be an expert in anything other than living in a community to participate in that process. Right. And I think that's a great point because decision makers aren't ex don't have to be experts either. They're not sitting there. They're not planners. They don't practice that in their daily life. Uh, that's not a requirement to be on a city council or a board of supervisors or a planning commission. And so we're all just working together for a common good. And I think that one of the issues that can come up with asking for more is this issue of a nexus. So, you know, what if the developer isn't interested in, in fixing an adjacent community that is in need of beautification? So one of the ways around it that we figured out in the city of Richmond is asking them to contribute to a pot of money that would then be used to beautify different areas. And they were pretty open to that as well. Um, I think another important aspect of uh, kind of our civic duty is um, understanding kind of how to work the system. So I'm also part of a Trails for Richmond Action Committee, track for short. And so our, our overarching goal is to um, develop as many miles as we can uh, along the Bay Trail in the city of Richmond. And so far, we're the city that has the most. I think we have, we're up to 32 miles now. And <clears throat> this group has been working since 1999. I've been part of it for about five years now. And one of the great things that they figured out how to do, our fearless leader, Bruce Bayart, he um, coordinated with the city to make sure that during the general plan update, they adopted specific policies that required, so action words require, shall, coordinate with track to make sure that in a situation where a project is being proposed along the Bay Trail, that that developer contributes to either the money to fund the, the development of that trail or to develop it as part of their project. And so um, that's worked really well. And um, in that way, you, the city is required to then make sure that this is put into action. It, I think it's like, um, in the, mm -hmm, go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say, I think a really fun common thread that keeps coming up through all these examples that you're sharing is to ask for what you want. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a student, ask to get involved, to ask how you can get involved, ask industry leaders, what, how they got their career started. When you are in the industry and as a leader, ask for more, ask the developer to fix the sidewalk, ask for additional funds. If you're a community member, ask for that pedestrian crosswalk to be put in. Because if, if you don't tell people and you don't communicate what you want and what the needs are, it's much more difficult for people to help you. And people might say no, but if you put it right. out there and ask, it sounds like a lot of these things can get done at, at any level of your career. Right. It can't hurt. And that's something that I've had to learn to do for myself as well. 
um, the worst that they the worst that can happen is they say no. Okay, well then ask it a different way or adjust it slightly, but keep asking. And it, it can be nerve wracking, it can be scary, and sometimes I need to do things to remind myself to do it, but that's that's the best way to create change. Absolutely, I 100% agree. It, it's kind of like if you if you don't vocalize, no one else is going to. People can't read your mind or learn through osmosis what what is needed in the community. We try really hard. Like as professionals, if you're in a public agency or you're an environmental consultant or you're a developer, we're all trying really hard. We study and study and study. We take surveys. We analyze. We interpret. We ask. We have these um, public scoping meetings where you contribute. But if if people don't participate and don't contribute, then we're almost making things up. Like the science is there, of course. Like I'm going to know how many bugs and bunnies and birds are in this area. But what I don't know is like, is there a sacred tree that represents, do you know what I mean? Like, is there a sacred tree there that represents something special to the community? And if I can incorporate that into the open space portion of my development project, instead of moving it somewhere else or getting rid of it entirely and replacing it with ornamental, and that would mean something of value to that community that I just simply don't know because I don't live there or I'm not, you know, in the sacred tree business, then, <laughs> then you know, I'm not going to know until you tell me. I, I do. Thank you, Jess. I think that's a, a crucial point is to, to speak up. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to argue or pound the pavement or be like the hardcore advocates that are out there rallying in the streets, but it is your rally cry when you go to a public meeting and, and say, um, hey, I'm really nervous about this industrial project. I don't develop plants myself. Can you please walk me through uh, what emissions are going to come out of here? What wastewater is going to come out of here? And um, where it's all going and everything. And that's the whole point of CEQA in our profession is to disclose what these environmental impacts could be and to solicit input from the from the community on if this is acceptable or not. And those lead agencies have the discretion to approve or deny. And that is literally how communities are built and cities are built and bridges are done. And I I think my Take home point is I recommend that civic studies in high school include how to get engaged in the CEQA NEPA processes and urban planning in your local community at at um, a high school level, because when you turn 18, you're an adult and you're voting on these things. Right. And I didn't know about any of this stuff until I went to college. And then really didn't start doing it until about five years into my career where I actually participated. So, well, I was thinking too, and, you know, kind of coming back around full circle to the student, students getting involved is I recently came across a resume for someone was applying for a position that required um, experience with CEQA regulations. And this person had all this experience and research and said, well, I never learned this in school. They didn't teach us in school at least university, maybe a master's graduate. So I didn't know anything about it. I'm like, well, he, and he said, all the jobs are asking for this, but they're not teaching it in schools. So um, nailing that home, not only for the average citizen, but also for students as well, or people who are getting into this career path, which is a lot of people. And 
the other side of that, I said, well, go to check out AEP. He had not heard of AEP. I'm like, check out the job board. They have workshops on CEQA. So that's another big resource of AEP is besides the networking and getting involved is the educational component to learn coming back to what you said, Claudia is to learn about the skill sets that jobs are asking for. Like AEP is a great resource for that. Yeah, you get to put it on your resume. Like I might not yeah. have learned about it in high school, but I went to the AEP CEQA Essentials Workshop and I participated in the student practicum. And then I went, I attended this Army Corps uh, Navigable Waters Rule webinar. And so I can say words and keep up. <laughs> you can put it on your resume and at least you've got, you've got something. Exactly. Just... Uh, any anything that you can attend or you know AAP is there to provide these free events for students and uh during now during the the pandemic when we kind of shifted to these virtual events um a lot of local chapters are teaming up to um to to present these kind of uh, webinars that can be accessed by students across the state so before, when we were more in person, it would just really depend on the local chapter to be active and engaged enough to uh, to do a CEQA practicum for students or to encourage students to volunteer at the CEQA Essentials Workshop or the Advanced Workshop. And now we get to do it over Zoom and you can just like click and attend across the state, which I think is really, really exciting. I, I agree because another example is the AEP San Diego chapter includes Imperial County. Imperial County is an environmental justice community, a disadvantaged community, and just by nature. And then it's very difficult to drive across rural counties to attend these workshops and still make your other classes and your meetings and everything else. So now that we've got webinars online, these people in lower income communities with less access and more barriers can now learn about these webinars. And there was one example, there's a student in Imperial Valley who wants to go to school at UC Berkeley. Well, now they can attend the San Francisco Bay Area chapter events from Imperial Valley in preparation for going to study there. And they've already, they're already developing community relationships with where they're going to move and live and start a new chapter of their lives. It's a it's a significant opportunity to invest in yourself and your future by just being open and attending some of these events. So I think I think in many ways the pandemic was a, a blessing for sharing information. For yeah, sure. I think it provided a platform to be more connected in this way, um, which I think is is a good a good thing. And speaking of environmental justice, I've. I've heard us talk about there there's in the in the environmental profession people are on the fence about whether EJ should be included in CEQA or if it belongs elsewhere and we know that it's analyzed in NEPA uh, what are your thoughts around the purpose and intent of addressing environmental justice and I, I guess actually start with what environmental justice the topic means to you specifically sure I think for me in terms of CEQA environmental justice is important to think about when you're in a community, it's a disadvantaged community, you're already burdened by air pollution, by truck traffic, uh, noise, and adjacent to your community is an empty parcel, or perhaps it's already developed, and it's zoned industrial. And by right, 
they can develop it with heavy industrial or light industrial uses. And it's just going to increase the burden that you're already facing as a community. There's something wrong about that, right? And so I think we should, we need to start thinking about these scenarios and thinking about ways that we can use CEQA's existing framework to at least discuss it, at least disclose it. Circling back to the fact that it's a public disclosure act, well, then this should be disclosed within the document and discussed to a certain degree, the best that we can. Doing so just doesn't seem right. I I do agree. And I also know that um, general plans of development are also required to either have an environmental justice element or EJ is to be incorporated in some other policy. I can't remember what the rule is. But I remember when that came out and it was so important to learn about because it came out when I was working at the County of San Diego and uh, we had not many designated California disadvantaged communities by Cal Screen. We just didn't have many of them in San Diego County. But now I work in Imperial Valley and it's like the most disadvantaged EJ community and many industrial uses are streamlined in the process. And what they've done, um, this is just a classic example of how getting people engaged. What they've done is they've, they've only, through their energy elements of the general plan and the energy element EIR, have only streamlined clean industrial projects. Like renewable, like geothermal power, for example, 100% renewable energy with no emissions and a closed loop system with no hazardous waste. That That is the entire the type of industrial use that's that the county considered okay to have in that region and they want to have it. So it takes the community to show up to these meetings and say, I do like these kinds of projects. This kind of project will make my public health issues worse. It will make these type of projects will make my environmental issues worse. And this is again a part of the the civic engagement process. You can be a part of it in the general plan of your community and community plans and the environmental impact reports for those community plans as part of land use policy and zoning of what gets built where or at the project level when projects come in and they want to be developed you can come and participate and i just uh, wanted to reiterate that that CEQA, while being a public disclosure act is not the only way to affect communities and where you live and address the disproportionate environmental hazards and opportunities that exist for low-income communities. Right. Yeah. I think I think I also want to point out that, you know, the burden shouldn't solely rest on residents in a community to advocate for themselves. I think that as public servants, uh, you know, the the planning department or whoever's in charge of that project and the decision makers as public servants need to advocate for the community as well. They need to provide an opportunity to bring people into the fold, either by providing information so that people understand what the heck CEQA is, California Environmental Quality Act, what is that? Um, how other ways to participate in the process, like you mentioned, Laurel, you know, like if, if, there, if the project is already evaluated by CEQA, and the hearing date is either to approve the project and certify the EIR, there's still an opportunity to tack on some conditions of approval that require some changes to certain things that could mitigate some issues, right? Which I think 
is really important. Um, in addition to that, I think it, it is important to note that SB 1000 now requires an, either an environmental justice element or environmental justice focused policies and general plans when the jurisdiction is revising two elements. And mm -hmm. now with the current housing element cycle, right? Uh, the law changed it so when you revise your housing element, the safety element is on the same cycle. So there's your two. And so all of these <laughs> jurisdictions across the, the California are having to revise their housing elements. And so we're seeing a lot of like kind of three projects, right? The revised housing element to conform to your arena standards, the safety element, and now EJ. And so that now opens the door for us to say, hey, jurisdictions, let's make your EJ policies contain action words, shall, require, you know, not should. Let's not use those. Let's say shall. And also, that's a great opportunity to kind of thread those policies into our CEQA evaluations. Is this future project, is it conforming to these buffers? Is it conforming to these required, you know, environmental technical analyses to make sure that, you know, the PM uh, particulate matter isn't going to exceed, exceed the air quality standards? Like now, now I see a bright future where we're going to have the framework to be able to really require this change, which is really exciting. It's really exciting. That, yes, it's really exciting too because AEP as an organization is on top of that stuff in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. We have a legislative committee and we have a day at the Capitol where we inform incoming legislators and um, existing legislators about these Senate bills and assembly bills that are coming in, how they are interconnected. So to your exact point, when we update the housing element to streamline affordable housing projects, you must also update your safety element, which is a trigger to update environmental justice. And AEP walk, yeah, AEP walking those legislators through that strategically so that when these things are approved, they have a powerful impact mm -hmm. of intended consequences, not unintended consequences of like, oops, I approved like, um, I don't know, like a water infrastructure bill, which just ruined all of the analysis <laughs> that we do for some, you know, and it's that AEP are, it's a group of leaders that go to Sacramento and explain the interconnectedness of all these resources and how strategically the profession uh, either advises against something for the following reason or supports this decision for the following reason. And it's just another reason why to be involved in the organization. Our legislative committee puts out these these reports and we get to write letters and we have a lobbyist that represents our organization in Sacramento. Uh, that is powerful, powerful change to be made. I think that I don't think many professional organizations um, in the environmental sector or that touch the environmental sector have lobbyists as part of your membership dues. Right. That is really cool. And it, it, like you said, Laurel, it gives us an opportunity to create change, to catalyze that change that we want to see. Aside from um, EJ, are there any other changes that you see coming through our profession or you want to see? Um, you know, I think, I think it's obvious that I'm a real advocate for public involvement and kind of immersing our students into what we do. I think it's important that students are aware of our profession, um, that see it as a viable career option. I think it's 
I think I, I would love to see jurisdictions um, prepare workshops for their community so that they can understand how to better be involved in their planning process or their sequel process. I think I think it's important if, if you're truly interested in involving your community, then you need to provide them with the information that they need to be actively involved. And I would like to see more of that. Thank you. So we appreciate you joining, first of all, and we're going to wrap up with our rapid five. So Claudia, what is your favorite daily habit? Every day I have iced coffee with homemade almond milk and ceremonial cacao. <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> speaking her language. <laughs> Wait, what are three things that you would bring to a deserted island? An axe, something to start fires with, and a TV. That's like connected to satellite. Is that allowed? <laughs> sure. Sure. I love it. You're planning. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite environmental policy? Um, I thought about this a lot. I don't think I have a favorite, but what I what I like are policies that have the words require, prohibit, and shall. That's what I like. All right. And favorite fauna or flora? Favorite fauna, greater prairie chickens. Oh, let's yeah. look those up. Yeah, they're so cute. They they like they lack kind of like. Uh, um, turkeys, you know, they like open fields. And so the males have their little dance and then they have these little blow up things that are like bright purple or orange. And the females just kind of see which they prefer. I love that. They have to put on a dance. Females get the choice. I love it. <laughs> and wouldn't it be cool if? Mm. Wouldn't it be cool if throughout California, residents were more involved in their planning and sequel processes. <laughs> Love it. Agreed. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you being on Environmental Leadership Chronicles. Thank you. It was a great time. Uh, you ladies are awesome to talk to, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Until next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a new podcast, it really helps us if you share with friends and colleagues that may enjoy this podcast as well. And please subscribe or follow the podcast to be alerted for new episodes. If you want to submit a shout out, please send a voice memo that's under one minute to podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org. That's podcast with an S at the end, podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org or please send any feedback you'd love to share. Thank you.